Hello, hello. Hey up, what's up, what's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, pubiets. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. That lovely and unforgettable selection to start the episode is from today's guest, Vijay Gupta. And we're going to be using another piece from Vijay to close out today's episode. I really think you're going to enjoy it. We have a terrific episode for you today with a fantastic guest, violinist and philanthropist and advocate for social justice, Vijay Gupta, joins the show. I'm constantly in awe of the intrepid and diverse individuals that are guests on the show. I feel they are the elite members of society, and none more than Vijay Gupta. My conversation with Vijay was one of those where immediately afterwards I felt inspired, I felt humbled, I was blown away, and I immediately had to call people and text people and let them know about this fascinating human that I was fortunate to chat with. Vijay has been featured on some of the most prominent news outlets in the world, including BBC, NPR, and the Washington Post. The violinist believes that the work of the artist and the citizen is one to make a daily practice of the connected, creative, and courageous world we long to live. Vijay's labor of love lies in the founding and directing of Street Symphony, which brings music to people in shelters, clinics, county jails, and prisons. His work serves to engage people across vast differences to create new connections and transformative conversations. For his work in bringing beauty, respite, and purpose to all those ignored by society while encouraging us to reflect on the many ways we can all make a difference and truly be citizens in our world today. VJ was a recipient of the 2018 Catherine D. and John T. MacArthur Grant. He's a dynamic speaker and facilitator, and he shares his vision of transformation through artistic practice in the form of musical keynote lectures, workshops, and strategic conversations. In 2020, VJ delivered the 33rd annual Nancy Hanks Lecture on Arts and Public Policy, introduced by Honorable Speaker Nancy Pelosi, entitled The Next Response, Practicing the Future Now. His 2010 TED Talk, Music is Medicine, Music is Sanity, has garnered millions of views. As an esteemed violinist, DJ is a recording artist, ardent chamber musician, and collaborator. He served as a member of the Los Angeles Philharmonic for 12 years. 
in which he joined as the youngest violinist in the orchestra's history. He has appeared as a guest concertmaster with the Philharmonia Orchestra of London and Los Angeles Opera. I could go on and on about his accolades as a musician and as a social justice advocate. But plain and simple, this is someone who's interesting because he is interested. DJ cares about humanity. He's eager to learn from others. And he's one of the most thoughtful people I've ever had the honor of chatting with. He's an incredibly talented musician, but you'll be blown away by his desire to help his fellow man and to speak up and be the voice and be an advocate for people in need. On today's conversation, BJ chats about his beginnings in music, and he shares with us a story in which he performed with Coolio. Yeah, and I was stoked to find that very performance available on YouTube. You get a chance to see young BJ performing on stage with both Coolio and Stevie Wonder. BJ also chats about the creation of Street Symphony, why it's important to him, and and why performing in these situations means so much to him. And lastly, DJ and I chat about his travels around the world and the countries and foods that stand out for him. Just a tremendous, tremendous human. Honored to have him on the show. He inspires me to do so much more and to be so much more and, and to think differently. Thrilled for everyone to meet him. So let's go ahead and bring on violinist and advocate for social justice, VJ Gupta. And let's learn. I'm curious on your earliest musical influences. Do you remember your first experiences with the violin? So from what I was told when I was uh, a young kid, uh, apparently I couldn't stop moving. And so my parents wanted to put an instrument in my hands. Uh, and I grew up in the mid Hudson Valley of New York, about 70 or 80 miles north of New York City. And uh, there weren't too many options there when it came to music lessons. So it was either the violin or the piano. Uh, so we went to the local high school music teacher and they sat me down in front of a piano. And apparently I cried for a good six hours straight. And so it was the violin. That was how I started. And then in terms of musical influences, I remember as a kid, um, you know, I my parents emigrated from India in the 1970s uh, from the state of Bengal all in uh, you know right adjacent to the country of bangladesh mm -hmm. and there was another bengali family in fact a large bengali community in new york at that time because a lot of engineers and doctors were coming over um to work at ibm actually uh, and there was an ibm plant uh near where i grew up in fishkill in new york and so um uh uh there was uh, a young Bengali violinist who was the concertmaster of his high school orchestra. And I remember looking at him and seeing him when I was a kid and being like, what, like, what is this? What's going on here? Um, so that was one influence on me. Um, you know, I called him my older brother uh, and, um, you know, he was, he was really special to me. And then, you know, my dad, um, who was actually a travel agent, uh, and this is actually why I'm really interested in speaking to you and speaking to you about travel, because travel made my life, travel informed my life. Uh, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, later on in the conversation. Uh, but my dad was really influenced by a conductor named Zubin Mehta. And Zubin Mehta was then the music director of the New York Philharmonic. Uh, and I can't imagine what it must have been like for my dad, you know, who's an immigrant from India, to see, you know, this debonair, handsome, matinee idol, Indian conductor conducting one of the top orchestras in the world. Um, and so my dad would actually write to famous people as me uh, when I was a little kid. And so he would write to 
Oprah and uh, David Letterman and Zubin Mehta. And these people were so nice. I think he even wrote to President Clinton at the time. And they would always, they would send back headshots, framed headshots. Or I guess, I guess my dad would frame them. And so I had this wall as a kid um, that was just filled with headshots of famous people. Uh, and, you know, that, that did something for me. It, it was like their, their influences were there, but it was more about what it meant to my dad that he could have access to those people through me. Wow, that, that's fascinating. You mentioned Oprah and President Clinton. Who are some other names that still stick out in your mind? Oh, man, I don't know if folks will remember a talk show host named Sally Jesse Raphael. <laughs> Raphael, yeah. <laughs> so she was up on the board. Uh, gosh, who else was up there? Um, you know, and it was, it, it'd be, you know, framed uh, elementary school honor roll diplomas or like my karate certificates. It's like they wanted to frame my life, you know, and and have have my achievements up on the wall. And from for my brother and me is, you know, for both of us together, um, we had sort of like wall of pride. Um, and I remember I would practice in front of this wall, you know, and, and it would be like playing for those people. And eventually um, I played my solo debut with the Israel Philharmonic and Zubin Mehta conducting. Um, and it was kind of this idea of manifestation, you know, put, put, put what you aspire to on the wall in front of you. And, um, you know, one day you'll achieve it. And I guess it was more about the achievements of my dad at that time, but it was definitely a lesson that I learned. Fascinating. I love that story. Who were some of the artists that you listened to at the time growing up and then maybe some of the ones that left a lasting impression on you? So when I was a kid growing up, I didn't have much choice around the artists I listened to because I was yeah. listening to classical music all okay. the time. Um, you know, I started sort of rebelling when I started listening to, you know, Led Zeppelin and okay. listening to, you know, uh, you know, Pink Floyd. And I think I was maybe like 30 or 40 years behind my, my colleagues, yeah. my classmates. You know, I remember I used to like, uh, you know, sneak the radio in because I, I was I was a Yankees fan uh, up until 2004 um, when they lost the ALCS to the Red Sox. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think it was ALCS, right? Isn't that the league? Um, but uh, I used to have a, a radio that I would listen to, and I just, I just wanted to listen to the radio because I was in middle, I was in junior high, middle school at the time, and I just wanted to know what like the ludicrous lyrics that everyone was saying in school, like what they actually meant. Yeah. So at the time, like I was going to like you know Juilliard and studying ear training and studying like how to you know learn counterpoint and learn how to conduct, and then at home I was like listening to ludicrous in my bed yeah. <laughs> because I was like I just need to keep up with my friends. It's cool to have some in common but you know i i grew up uh learning how to play the violin with a method called the suzuki method mm -hmm. and the suzuki method is really interesting because it was started by a man named shinichi suzuki he was a violinist came from a long family of violin makers um in the 1920s and 30s in japan of course the war has decimated uh his his family and and his business but he started a school of teaching violin to very very young kids and his whole premise was if a young child can learn how to speak a language as complex as japanese they can take in a language as complex as music if they're 
exposed to it at a very, very young age. And so he was kind of a pioneer in childhood psychology. Um, but his book is called Nurtured by Love. And I love that because he was you know, sort of pioneer in being a force of attunement and compassion and love for young people. And so I grew up listening to again, kind of maybe like the the photos on the wall, you know, aspiring to meet a person. I grew up listening to great violinists who I aspired to sound like. Yeah. And so, you know, there perhaps your listeners may not uh, know all of the classical musicians I grew up listening to, but of course the famous ones like Yo-Yo Ma and Itzhak Perlman and, and the great names in the in the classical music world. But there was something about listening to people that told me about how they were in the world, who they were. I could tell from someone's sound. I can even tell now from the way someone sounds um, the kind of person they are. You know, and you listen to Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, and you can tell from the first breath before he sings the note, you can tell the kind of person this is. You can tell what the music we can tell what the music cost him. And I think that's the sort of thing that attuning one's ears at a very young age teaches you to listen deeper than the veneer, right? How do we listen behind the veneer of the first thing we notice? And I'm really intrigued by that idea. What a tremendous answer. I know that being in the classical world growing up, Hip hop music was probably looked down upon in a lot of ways. And I was like, why are you listening to that nonsense? I grew up in the same era like that. And it was always looked upon down. But I'm curious, what were some of the positives that you gained from listening to something outside of classical, whether it be not just hip hop, but also the Led Zeppelins and not? How did that benefit you as a musician? You know, I have to return to an earlier question because you asked about some of who else was on the wall. And you just reminded me that Coolio and Stevie Wonder were on the wall too. I love it. Yeah. And the reason they were is because I played. There's a video of this online somewhere on YouTube. I played the 1995 Billboard Awards at when I was eight years old when Gangsta's Paradise won the Billboard number one charts. And so it was also, you know, right next to, I think probably right next to President Clinton was a photo of Coolio, Stevie Wonder and me. Um, and I was one of those little urchins, you know, playing violin, rocking out because there's a violin part in Gangsta's Paradise. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was originally sampled from Stevie Wonder Pastime Paradise. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and I took that I took that in to my lessons at Juilliard <laughs> and I had uh, someone, you know, teach me and work on the rhythms with me, you know, and, and that was a te that was a Suzuki teacher who was one of the top pedagogues at the time. And um, I, I don't know what she thought, but in terms of listening outside the influences look i mean classical music has this reputation uh for better or worse of being you know hoity-toity being something that you know the the billionaire despot is listening to in its in in his lair you know <laughs> or you know the the character in you know wedding crashers who you know needs to be taken yeah. down a couple of pegs or listening to a string quartet or Vivaldi or whatever but the truth is that in their time, these artists were much closer to hip hop artists or rock and roll artists than we think now. You know, there's stories of Beethoven, like Beethoven's famous third symphony, the Eroica symphony, which he dedicated to Napoleon. 
uh, when Napoleon invaded Russia, um, Beethoven took the title page of Eroica and scratched out Napoleon's name. He was like, you know, the first uh, politician being canceled by a composer. Literally, the <laughs> title page of the symphony has Napoleon's name crossed out, scratched out, not even crossed, like like ripped out. Yeah. And and so these were people who who bled and who fought and who rebelled and who experienced grief and loss, probably a lot more similarly to, you know, I, t- I talked about Jeff Buckley's voice, voice, imagine Robert Plant's voice, you know, and and the voice of that that kind of existential scream and how I hear that voice in Schubert. I hear that voice in in Mozart operas, um, you know, it was as vulnerable, it was as raw, it was as human. Um, and so to say that um, there's a difference between these musics, uh, to me is a construct, you know, and, and I, I would even go as far as to say that classical music is a marketing term. Uh, and nothing more than that. It's actually not about the music or about the era. Those folks still went through some real shit. What a fantastic point. I think back to the stories I read about, you're right, they were the hip-hop artists of their day. Yeah, totally. I'm curious, I know you're a deep thinker, you're very introspective, so how do you put yourself in the right mindset for a performance? You know, part of what I'm learning how to do now, um, and this is something I wish I had been taught earlier in my life, is how to get out of my head and get into my body. Um, and I really enjoy uh high intensity weight training high in high intensity interval training um to condition my mind and i and i work out you know at at 5 30 or 6 o'clock in the morning nearly every day uh and pushing myself to failure and if i knock out the hardest thing that i can do in my day within 30 minutes of waking up before the sun rises something in my mindset changes for the whole rest of the day and i'm in a place of equanimity where I'm responding to the day as opposed to reacting to the day. And so I'm trying to create the ecosystem for myself in which I am in a place of response as opposed to a place of reaction. Because playing the violin, whether I'm collaborating with folks or playing by myself as a soloist, and I've been uh, recording quite a lot recently. In fact, I'm about to release an album in about two weeks of solo violin music. Um, Recording is one of the, the, the most difficult and challenging things because it's just you naked in front of the mirror of the microphone. It's your entire humanity exposed. And so in a sense, you are reacting and responding to yourself. And so it's not a matter of canceling out your adrenaline or canceling out your nerves. You're going to have nerves. You're going to have adrenaline. You're going to fuck up. You know, you're going to, you're going to have a situation where your humanity shows through. It's how you choose to respond to that in the moment. As opposed to as opposed to getting drawn into the the you know flushing toilet bowl of um, of that one human mistake or error, um, and so part of what I really find I am drawn to is to first of all you know work out in the morning, and then part of my morning routine is also to write, and I write every day, and I I do something kind of like. Um, Julia Cameron's morning pages where I'll sit down and I'll just journal a couple of pages. And it's kind of like, you know, she calls it windshield wipers for the soul. Um, and it's just to get this stuff out, just to get it out on paper. And sometimes uh, you get a glimpse, you know, in the last couple of sentences that you write of 
an edge, right? An edge of thinking, the edge of an idea, the edge of something new. And so then again, you're leaning into that newness and leaning into that edge for the rest of your day, yeah. as opposed to pushing and hustling, you know, that, 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 that'd be how, kind of how I think about getting into the, into the zone. Does that zone, is it different while recording as opposed to being on stage for a performance? Very much so. Yeah. Um, you know, I've really been thinking a lot about how the way I play changes based on who is listening to me. You know, so I play on stages. I've played on stages all over the world since I was six or seven years old. But the most important stages I, I play for recently are not stages at all. They're, they're for folks who are living in clinics and shelters and skid row who are you know, predominantly recovering from homelessness uh, and incarceration. I've played in prisons. Uh, and I feel I always feel much more at home in these spaces because the interaction is so much more authentic with the audience. I am there as someone who is both giving and receiving as opposed to putting on a mask and just performing as a commodity or a product on a stage. It means everything to me when I can see my audience. And the way that that relates to recording is very interesting because of course the audience is inside. But you know, when I just recorded my recent album, I had a dear friend of mine, someone who spent 30 years in Solano prison in California. Uh, he was my only audience member in the recording session. He's the only person I played for. And I was playing for Dwayne. I was playing for him. And that sort of intimacy is something I'm really interested in capturing in recordings. And I was recording in a huge church in Pasadena, where I live. Um, the church was completely empty, except for my producer, engineer, and Dwayne. And so, you know, I'm really curious about this idea, especially through COVID, you know, we have all become audiences of one. <laughs> Everyone listening to this podcast right now is an audience of one. And the impact and depth that they can receive just from listening one to one, I think is really special and unique as opposed to just having something spouted at you from a stage. I think this is a conversation as opposed to a performance. Well, there's a couple of things I picked up on from there that stuck with me. One, I love your humility of you say you're giving and receiving as well. But I also love the fact that maybe in front of a big group, you can't personalize it because it's just a bunch of empty faces. But when it's one person, so does that change when you know you can identify with one person? Does, first of all, does that, does that motivate you more? And then second of all, how does that alter the selections that you choose? Mm. So, you know, just to, just to come back to the point around the audience is that I was a member of the LA Philharmonic for 12 years. I played in the first violin section of, of this orchestra and we played in huge venues all over the world. We played in, you know, concert halls like the Suntory Hall in Tokyo and Concertgebouw in, in Amsterdam and, you know, the Philharmonie in, in Berlin and London and New York. And then of course our home hall was Walt Disney Concert Hall and the Hollywood Bowl in LA. And the Hollywood Bowl capacity is 18,000 people. Mm. Um, and I'll never forget, you know, playing sold out nights of uh, Star Wars and, and themes by John Williams, conducted by John Williams and like 12,000 lightsabers coming on in the, in the, in the, the audience of the Hollywood Bowl. But it, 
it made everything feel so special when I knew that people I loved, my family or my loved ones or my friends were in that audience. Okay. I know I play differently, even if I couldn't see them. Okay. And in the hall, sometimes I'd ask them where they were sitting and I would still play for them. And so, yes, it did motivate me differently, but I didn't feel alone. I didn't feel yeah. exposed. I felt like there was a sense of trust that was created. And again, I come back to Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah um, because I'm drawn in from the way he breathes. I'm there. And the sound of the breath is so intimate yeah. that I feel vulnerable, right? I feel his vulnerability through the microphone. He's, he's doing something way more than singing and playing so perfectly. He's drawing you in. And so that membrane is really special to me. And so when I was playing, you know, for Dwayne during my recording session, it changed the narrative I tell myself about the music I was playing, which happened to be the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And we were talking about, you know, composers as rock stars. Um, Bach wrote those pieces, the six sonatas and partitas for unaccompanied violin. Uh, in the year 1720, which was the year of one of the worst tragedies of his life, his wife, Maria Barbara, very suddenly passed away while he was away on a trip. And he came back and she had already been dead and buried for four months. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine the grief that he must have felt that the first person he wanted to embrace was a grave, you know, and that his kids, his sister-in-law had already grieved her. Right. And, I, and that brings up a lot for me around this time of COVID, too, that, you know, for every person who's passed due to COVID or due to any reason, there will be five to 10 people who mourn that person. Right. So I'm thinking a lot about creating these spaces of intimate grieving and memorial as my calling as an artist right now. How, how, do, how do I actually own and lean into that space and make that part of what I do? And I was mourning with Dwayne. You know, I've had long conversations about him and his regrets and his life and his humanity and his imperfect, you know, his is all of our imperfect humanity and humility and that we've all hurt people. We've all been hurt by people. And so for me, when I was playing for Dwayne in that church, Bach wasn't some, you know, marble bust of a dead, you know, white guy on a pedestal. He was a living, breathing, aching human being. Yeah. And for me, that's much more interesting to play that person's music as opposed to playing the music of, you know, something that my teachers told me to do right or wrong. Yeah. Tell me about Street Symphony and what inspired its creation. Street Symphony was created when a number of my colleagues from the LA Philharmonic and I started playing benefit concerts for uh, just the sheer number of people, upwards of 60,000 people, even 10 years ago, who were experiencing chronic homelessness in LA County. Um, you know, of course, this goes without saying that a lot of the folks who are chronically unhoused have severe mental health issues, they're battling with addiction issues, they're in and out of um, settings of incarceration, they are poor people, often poor black and brown people. And what I noticed was that for all of our 
benefit concerts, we'd be playing for politicians and donors and rich people and churches and conferences and concert halls. We were never playing for the people. Wow, we were never actually playing for the people we said we wanted to help. It felt like a kind of overinflated virtue signal, you know, and I wanted to actually play for the folks. I wanted to know what it was like, you know. Um, I had had a background in biology. Of course, growing up, uh, my parents wanted me to you know, be a musician, but they also wanted me to be a doctor. And I don't know how much that had to do with, you know, my last name being Gupta or being a, you know, uh, a child of Indian immigrants. Um, but I wanted to help people. You know, I was inspired by stories like Paul Farmer and the doctors who actually did the work, you know, uh, the Doctors Without Borders and Red Cross doctors. And there was a part of me that was, you know, playing on stage at Walt Disney Concert Hall two blocks away, not two blocks, excuse me, about you know, less than two miles away from the largest community of homeless people in America in Skid Row. And so I started knocking on doors, um, literally and proverbially. I started calling hospices and clinics and shelters and hospitals. And I was like, I want to come play for you. I want to come play, you know, with my colleagues from the LA film. And, you know, in my naive sort of uh, uh, maybe um, idealistic way, I didn't realize that the person I was calling might have been on the ass end of a 12-hour shift <laughs> where two people died at a hospice, you know? And so receptionists would hang up on me. They'd yeah. be like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, like, yeah. Don't, we, we, don't, we don't need a concert. And you know what? The truth is that, yeah, they, they didn't need a concert. They needed um, some hope. They needed some dignity. They needed some humanity. And the truth is I needed some hope. I needed some humanity. I needed some dignity. I needed a connection to a community that was more than just playing on a stage to a dark audience. And so it was actually social workers in Skid Row who understood what I was trying to do. And they were the ones who opened the doors of a mental health clinic on Skid Row, right on Maple Avenue in downtown LA across the street from the Skid Row police station. And we started playing concerts, um, you know, quartets of Beethoven and Brahms and Schubert and Mendelssohn and Mozart um, for audiences of 30 to 50 people who were all clients of the Department of Mental Health. So they might have been people who walked, you know, in from the street uh, and wanted to talk to someone. They might have been people who were uh, residents in a nearby permanent supportive housing shelter or, you know, SRO or Section 8 housing in Skid Row. And they just wanted something different than the trauma that they were being faced with every day. Uh, you know, Skid Row is a horrifying place. Skid Row is a place where, you know, there was a man, a guitarist, actually, a couple of years ago, who was set on fire inside his tent and he died in his tent. You know, it, it's a place where, you know, we, we hear you hear gunshots Every day, you're a siren every five minutes. You know, it's, it's a place where there is a real wound in society. But going to Skid Row felt like an important pilgrimage. Uh, it felt kind of like the way traveling to another country felt. Because you're immediately put in a place of humility. You realize that you're not the boss here. You don't speak the language. Uh, you don't have the social relational currency with residents that you think you do. And so you're engaging from a place of discomfort 
And if you want to engage with your humanity, you're engaging from a place of humility as well. And this is the place from where we played our concerts. And so our concerts, of course, very quickly stopped being concerts. And they very quickly started becoming conversations because we'd play for folks. And in the middle of a Beethoven string quartet movement or after a movement of a Mozart duo, an audience member would raise their hand and keep their hand up. Or a colleague of mine who I was playing with would start crying. My colleagues would start crying. And in both instances, I'd go, what the hell is going on? Like, this is this is a concert. Like, get your shit together. Like, this is, yeah. we're not here to be, you know, vulnerable. Like, this is a performance. And then it took me a couple of years to realize, like, no, 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 that was the point. We had to undo the performance. We had to undo the veneer of trying to act like everything was okay when everything was broken. Around us, within us, and outside us, right? And so what we noticed is that our audiences were people who had been through some of the worst and roughest stuff that humanity had to offer them, right? They, we've had people in our audiences who I know have taken another person's life. We have had people in our audiences who have seen their loved ones, you know, die due to an overdose. We've had friends of ours, dear friends who we've known for years, relapse and die. And when we play music for them, this music is not entertainment. It's not passive. Our audiences put themselves and put their whole humanity in the music we're playing. And so they would say stuff to us like, oh, that part, that part where, you know, you guys were making eyes at each other and you were playing all vicious and you were playing all angry. That was just like my mom and dad fighting mm. and screaming at each other and beating the shit out of each other when I was a kid. And then my colleague, who's on, you know, quote unquote, on stage with me, and there was no stage, we're playing in a you know, basement conference room. Um, he would say, yeah, my dad was a prison guard. My mom had schizophrenia. And I had known this colleague of mine for years. And I had never heard that story. Wow. You, know, you know, even even last week, last Wednesday, I went to a program in Skid Row which we call Music for Change. It's a program for folks in reentry from life sentences in California prison. So they've been paroled. They're reentering in a halfway home in Skid Row. And, you know, I started to see that Skid Row was a horrifying place, but Skid Row was also a place if someone wanted to get clean, if someone wanted to find their feet again, Skid Row was the best place for them to do that because the resources were there. The people who had actually been through it were there. And this guy rolls up in his wheelchair to one of our violists, a young woman. And, and I have known this man for about two years. And for the first time, he showed us a picture of his daughter. And he said, I wish I could have danced with my daughter at her wedding. And he said, our violist reminded him of his daughter. Mm. And, you know, the thing that I've learned from people in reentry and recovery is that we don't have to take the entirety of our identity from the worst thing that ever happened to us or the worst thing that we ever did to another person. That's a profound human lesson, right? Yeah. And, and that's a profound act of forgiveness and self-forgiveness. And the only way that we can grow from our brokenness is by embracing, accepting our brokenness, and by choosing to take our identity from something more than our pain. We can talk about oppression and pain as much as we want to, but the question is, what are you making? What are you making of your life? 
And so when I go to Skid Row, I've been asked, do you feel guilty? Do you feel guilty for having a life of privilege? Do you feel guilty for having a life where you get to have talent and skill and make money doing what you do? And my folks, my colleagues, my friends, my mentors in Skid Row say, no, man, live your life. Go live your life. Go do good. <laughs> Go tell our story. Go live your life so that we can live ours. And so that's been, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of helped me develop a sense of morality around art and work and recovery that I don't think I could have ever discovered otherwise. Wow. Uh, blown away by, by that. Uh, just an exceptional meritorious project. I, I can't tell you how much I respect and admire that. Uh, we look at the to travel question now. Music has taken you all around the world to many concert halls and stages. So thus far, what are the locations and performances that, that make you the most proud? Hmm. You know, I mentioned that my dad was a travel agent. Yeah. And, you know, he was someone, he passed in 2017. And he was someone who could speak about five different Indian languages. You know, in India, of course, we have you know, 14 or 15 languages and, of course, 90 dialects. And his main job was to connect families who were living in the States with their families back home in India, especially when an older person, when a grandfather or grandmother was on their deathbed. And so in a way, he was kind of like, uh, who's the Greek? Uh, Charon. The, he's like the, 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 <laughs> the, reference, the, yeah. boat, the boatman. Yeah. Uh, kind of ferrying people back and forth. And he was sort of like um, this connector. And travel is connection. Travel is humility. And I've learned the most when I've traveled to a place and I've not been known or recognized or, you know, given a standing ovation just simply for being there. And that's, as a performer, that's really double-edged because... I often am on a stage in front of a community of people with my violin, you know, with uh, a poster of me hanging outside the, the concert hall I'm about to play in. And so people know who I am. Um, but what, I've, what I feel most proud of, actually, are the moments in which I'm standing before an audience of people with whom I think I have nothing in common. Um, and... That might be because I don't share their culture, I don't share their language, I don't share their political ideology, um, and I find a way to start a conversation. That thrills me. And of all the places that I've been in the world, I, I will never forget, I visited Peru, Nebraska uh, in 2016, early 2016, and I went to, uh, I was speaking, speaking at, a, at a state school in Nebraska, and I thought, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I, I've never been to this place. I had all of the sort of, you know, uh, quintessential sort of stigma and stereotypes about middle America and red America. I had some of the best conversations I've ever had in my life with that audience. Um, we talked about humanity. We talked about humility. We talked about God. We talked about music. Um, and that, that is what I'm really, really interested in because be, again, listening beneath the veneer, looking and seeing someone beneath the mask is so incredible because we start to engage people from their values 
as opposed to what they say the values are or what you think their values are. Yeah. Um, how do we move beneath the so-called virtue signal? How do we move beneath the performance and actually start to listen to each other? And I think as we start to listen to each other with that degree of authenticity and humility, we start to uncover parts of ourselves that are uncomfortable. And so that that's also a part of performing. Again, you know, performing whether in India or performing in a jail or a prison. You know, I've had people in prison shout uh, at me and say, what the fuck are you doing here? You know, why, why should we listen to you? Why should we listen to you? You know, these are folks who have nothing to lose. And, I, you know, and I'll have to stand there and stand my ground and say, because I have something to say. Mm. You listen to me because I have something to say. And I'll listen to you because you have something to say too. So that's the conversation and the bridge and the connection. You know, uh, I want to carry on my, my dad's work of being uh, a ferryman <laughs> uh, and continuing the conversation. I, I love it. How about purely as a tourist? Locations you visited, just just for the fun that you're just like, you know what? Not necessarily yeah. your favorite. Not necessarily your favorite, because I don't like the question, "What's your favorite?" But the location yeah. as a tourist that left the strongest emotional mark on you. Gosh, you know, I love Japan, man. Okay, I loved Tokyo. Um, I, it's just such a different planet to me. Um, I and I, I love visiting and traveling through food, you know, and so okay. whether it's um, you know amazing sushi in Rapongi or going to an izakaya and you know or a pub to have ramyun and you know just eating my way through japan um was so incredible um i love amsterdam yeah as well uh amsterdam's an amazing amazing city another great place you know, to eat your way through as well oh my gosh and i'm thinking <laughs> you know not just uh you know the the, the world center of amazing food, but then to have rice tuffel in, in Amsterdam, you know, the, the sort of uh, sampling plate of Indonesian dishes and foods, you know, and, and, and you know, that brings me to, you know, I, I love, I love, I loved Bali. Um, I love traveling there. Of course, you know, I've been to India several times, but, you know, I feel like I've only scratched the surface of, of India um, because I've always gone as a performer. You know, I've always gone as someone who, you know, had an instrument, but I'm really, really curious to go as an anonymous person, you know, and, and, and to just, to just, uh, to just be there. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think those are some of my, my highlights. Oh, I, I also have had a chance to spend a good amount of time in London because um, I was playing with the London Philharmonia for some time. Um, and, uh, you know, London's a great great city as well so um yeah those those would be some of my some of my highlights and and that that just feels like a you know uh yeah almost guilty pleasure you know no. just to just to take no it guilt in at all. No. To, yeah yeah and, and 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 i i'm i'm very lucky to work as a speaker so i speak for companies like you know hallmark and accenture and i've had a chance to travel all over the u.s i mentioned you know uh, Peru, Nebraska, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, in the U.S., I, I you know travel to Boston, Chicago often, and you know it's not just the cities and and the food, of course, but the people and the relationships that I get to cultivate there. Um, I think you start to travel differently when you have relationships in the places you're traveling to, and you get to see a different side of your friends, uh, a different side of yourself than you necessarily thought you would. Very true. And having someone in that city, it just amplifies a reason to go there. So it's important to have friends around the world just for mm -hmm. that reason for travel. I'm curious, just I had to ask though, 
you step into a new sushi spot, wherever it is in the world, what's your go-to? I have to try this sushi. I'm in a new city. What's your go-to order? Well, so if I'm having omakase and I'm sitting at the bar, I was taught by my sushi chef friends in LA that the first thing to ask for is madai, the red snapper. Um, and if it's fresh and if it's good, um, that is the greatest test of a sushi chef because the technique has to be perfect. The fish is actually not as forgiving as tuna is. And you ask for it with um, lime and salt, not with soy because okay. they have to get the seasoning just right. So I've been told that if you sit down at an, at an omakase, the first thing you ask for, first you have to always ask the chef what's good. You, know, you have to ask them what's good. And then, you know, if you have the, if you order that, you eat with your fingers and you don't, you know, mix your soy sauce and wasabi uh, and you trust the chef, you'll yeah. have a pretty remarkable experience. Sound. And tell them, tell them, always tell them, oishi, oishi, always tell them how good it is. Sound advice. I think I inspired me to get sushi today. You, just, you settled my lunch <laughs> order. So. Um, book recommendations, most memorable books of the last few years. I have based a lot of my reading habits around two particular um, thinkers. One is a friend of mine um, named Austin Kleon. Austin wrote a series of books called Steel Like an Artist. There's so much fun to read, but Austin has a great blog as well. And he talks about, you know, reading as following your curiosity. Um, and so right now, I'm really curious about the power of storytelling as a medium for healing itself. And so I just finished a book. It's on the shelf over here called the Wounded Storyteller. Mm. It's by a man named Arthur Frank. Um, it's it's medical ethics. Um, it goes back, I think it was written in the mid-90s, but it's talking about how the wound, the illness, the diagnosis is only the beginning of the healing journey and that there are many narratives to healing, but that the sort of, you know, Joseph Campbell type hero's journey towards healing is the beginning of understanding yourself through a new lens that the wound or the, the, the illness becomes uh, a pathway to the other side of your life. Uh, and that, you know, if you're in recovery uh, or remission from, say, something like cancer, you can't go back to the life that caused the cancer, right? And, and that requires you to write a new narrative, write a new story about yourself. Um, you know, I love uh, um, what Toni Morrison says about narrative. Uh, she, she says, I think it was her 1993 Nobel lecture, and she said, narrative is radical. It shapes us as we shape it. You know, and, and she started off by saying, if you, if you don't have a story, make one up. Make up a story. We all can write a story. Yeah. I'm currently reading a number of books. Um, let's see. I've, I'm reading a book called Reinventing Bach by Paul Eli. Mm -hmm. um, it's a book about how, um, you know, we have this idea that Bach's music died, but actually Bach's music has constantly been reinvented and rein reinventing itself with uh ties to technology. So, you know, when Bach was so-called rediscovered, it was a time when music became much more available in printed form so people could study different editions. And then, um, you know, Glenn, uh, first Albert Schweitzer recorded the first LPs. Glenn Gould recorded the first sort of LP as uh, her first, first CDs and albums. And then Yo-Yo Ma uh, premiered the, the iPod with Bach. And, you know, what's next? And I'm kind of think, thinking about that sort of thing too. Um, I love reading poetry. I'm currently reading Rilke, The Sonnets to Orphan. 
Orpheus, uh, love the poetry of the Sufi poets, uh, Hafiz and Rumi. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read just about anything. Um, and uh, I, you know, reading for me is this sort of incredible conversation that we get to have with thinkers. Um, and I read as a conversation, I read with a pencil in my hand, I underline things, I write in the margins, um, because I want to read with engagement. And the thing I think that the, the lesson, most important lesson I learned is that if, if I'm not feeling a book, um, you know, to try to find the balance of do I stick with this? Uh, or do I move on? Or do I need to come back to this uh, at another time? And it is in terms of novels, I just finished reading Milan Kundera's uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being, uh, which is just uh, so beautiful, so beautiful, something worth coming back to for the rest of your life. So I think the next step in my reading journey is to actually not acquire and read more books, but to return to the books I've read uh, and understand myself through that mirror and lens after not having read it for a couple of years. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm excited. This has been one of my favorite conversations of the year. Everything from the Yankees in baseball to ludicrous <laughs> to your philanthropic efforts with Street Symphony to talk about travel. This has been exceptional. How can people stay up to date with your life and about the new album? How can they get that when it's released? Yeah, thanks, Randall. Um, I, I, I just want to go back for one second because I mentioned another book. Um, okay. And that's James, that James Clear's Atomic Habits. Okay. Um, and so, so Austin Kleon, Still Like an Artist, James Clear, Atomic Habits, um, two, two of the books. Adding them so to my I'm, list today. This is brilliant. This is great. Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll enjoy uh, the, the James Clear. So uh, I'm now, over the next six years, going to release six albums of the six unaccompanied sonatas and partitas of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, the first album, uh, called When the Violin, is actually based on a poem by the Sufi poet Hafiz. Uh, it's going to be available for pre-order on Bandcamp on May 15th. Um, please check it out. Uh, and then um, it'll be available for purchase on June 15th. Uh, and then I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm very active on social media. I can find me on Instagram. Uh, I have uh, a practice of posting whatever I'm practicing that day uh, daily to Instagram. So it's been actually really cool to have a very diverse following of folks who are like, oh my God, I never thought I'd, you know, hear that or want to hear that thing. So that sort of is a, an exercise in humility. So I'm at I Instagram at Gupta Violin and then also on YouTube at Gupta Violin. You know, I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, for you and for your listeners, um, how during this time, you know, when we haven't been able to travel as much as we would like or as much as um, we are free to, what are sort of your modes of metaphoric transportation? And this is a question for you, actually, you know, and I'm, I'm curious if, if your listeners are thinking about this as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious because making a podcast, uh, writing a book, reading books, these kind of strike me as these kind of creative endeavors that are a kind of travel of their own, um, an internal deep dive. And I wonder if you felt at any point any resistance to creating the podcast or creating the creative endeavors yourselves and what that resistance has told you about what's important to you or what scares you. Thank you for asking that. I think all of the above and as far as how I've use my creativity over the last year of, of travels lacking, but every day we're chatting someone who tells me about their story of visiting Bali. That is my travel. 
reading I've read more this year than ever before. And, and like you mentioned, it's everything across the gamut. It's novels, books on history, it's books, just everything that I can. And these conversations is number one, as far as mm -hmm. the people that I've met and hearing how they've handled the uncertainty, because I had a guest on recently who used this time of, she needed to get out of the house. And now she's established it as this is her new life as achieving summits, climbing mountains. And this was something that a year ago, she never even really thought about, but she just wanted to get out of the house. So hearing the stories of, yeah. of of how people have handled the uncertainty and have created from it. Because most of the guests that I have on the show, it's a period of uncertainty. It's a period of doubt that inspired them. Maybe it wasn't this year, but maybe it was a few years ago that has changed their lives for the better. I, they found new, new things that they love. And that's kind of what has been the big driving force for me is, is what, what was it that inspired your change or the guest change in their life? Mm. What, what, what was that moment? And also a lot of things that's happened with the guests of last year, a lot of them have thrived. Very few have come on the show and said, you know, this pandemic quarantine killed me. And yeah, they, a lot of people have suffered and they've had their down moments, but they've turned that. I think you mentioned earlier about you can't block out the anxiety that comes with the performance. Well, you can't block out the sadness in the morning that comes with the pandemic, but you can use that energy, change it into something else. And I think mm -hmm. that has been probably my most enjoyable part of it is finding out how everyone has used this as a time to thrive. And it, it's funny because yeah. they, they often will say, you know, I, I hate saying this, but I've done well. And it, they feel guilty that they're not supposed to say they've done well during the pandemic. But I feel like it's been a choice. Like you're going to come out of this in one way or the other. And it's, it's a choice of the direction you want to go. You're exactly right. It's a choice. It's a choice. You know, we get to choose. We get to choose how we manifest our lives. And I think it, it, it comes back to this idea of we get to choose where we take our identity from. Mm -hmm. You know, are we going to take our identity from the horrible pain um, that is real? Um, and it's worth acknowledging, but we don't have to take our, the entirety of our identity from it. So, you know, you are what you pay attention to. You are what you pay attention to. So I feel like right now, especially, I find that even in the people who have done well and have nourished their creative souls, they're less likely to look to consumption as a way of fulfilling that void, right? We, we can't consume our way to wholeness. We can't, but we can create our way to it. And so I guess, you know, that's where I would kind of leave the question for you and for your listeners. And I, I feel very fortunate to, to have had this conversation with you to kind of leave it with this question of how are you creating the life that you envision, you know, and, and there's no wrong way to create because even if you create half a bridge that ends up in the water someone else has created half a bridge too you know and if we're all even creating half a quarter a third <laughs> a fraction of a bridge um we can create connections to kind of help us step over and through this void a couple of other things came to mind you mentioned consumption i think the quote is you'll never get enough of what you don't need to make you happy mm -hmm. And that, that's the first thing I think about when, when in the secondly earlier, you're talking about writing and about that everybody's got a story. And that's another thing I've learned is that we've all got stories, but who's putting it down on paper? Who's creating, like you just said, who's doing that? I wish I could talk to you all day. This is fantastic. But it did also make me think of the book by Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And that he, he made it, that has stuck with me forever just because he made a choice. This is every day. My life is, is all, is his living hell, but I'm going to make a choice that they, they can't take that away from me. That's it. This was, this was so, so lovely. So lovely, man. This is, I really, I could talk to you just so much about not even music related. I think you're a tremendous <laughs> human. So this was fantastic. Made my day, made my month, made my year, all of the above. So very kind, and I'm going to add up all those books as well, but I know we'll chat again, but thanks for today. Of course. Take care. Be well. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Be sure to give him a follow on Instagram. Be on the lookout for VJ's newest album. You can pre-order the album When the Violin on Bandcamp, and it'll be available for purchase on June 15th.